What? No, I was like, nothing. You're good. Uh, okay. <laughs> what? What's wrong with you? Nothing. I don't know. <laughs> what you're, we... just, you're not talking. I don't understand. What, do you, what am I supposed to talk about? You didn't ask me any know. questions. It doesn't usually stop you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Welcome back, I'm Erin. And in this episode, Scott, Ethan, and I go over what we learned from the second half of the Saturn's accident reconstruction report. But before we get into it, there were a few follow-ups from part one, as well as some miscellaneous items that were noted in the report that we wanted to mention. Also, any pictures or diagrams that we mention in the episode will be posted to the official Facebook page. And as always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or clarifications. So a couple things to follow up on from the last episode. The first one is Julie talked to us about the seatbelts. And basically what she said is that it would have been very atypical for Maura to not have been wearing her seatbelt because she always wore her seatbelt and was kind of a stickler about it. So she thought that that was unusual and perhaps worth noting. She also told us a story about how when she would get in the car with Fred, like if she was driving and Fred got in the car with her, she would demand that Fred put his seatbelt on before she would drive anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he he told me that story as well. (laughs) Also, he he doesn't like seatbelts so much that he'll like let the the dinger keep going for like hours (laughs) and not put on a seatbelt. And I just thought that was funny. Um, And then the other thing. I mentioned the fact that I thought Mora may have been drinking Diet Cherry Coke with a Twizzler, and I went back and looked at the possessed property report from when they took the car and its contents back into evidence in June of 2004, and on that report on page four, there's a bottle of Diet Cherry Coke, and in parentheses it says opened, and a package of Twizzlers, strawberry licorice, and in parentheses it says open. And there's this picture floating around um, on the internet of Kathleen Murray with Morris stuff from the car, and you can actually see the Diet Cherry Coke bottle in the back. So still can't necessarily say what was in the Cherry Coke bottle, but it's sort of stands to reason that that's what she may have been drinking when she crashed the car and whatever contents of that bottle are on the ceiling. Yeah. It's definitely open. It's definitely had a decent amount drunk from it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's also, uh, I'm looking right at it. So I know, but for our listeners, it's a two liter bottle. It's not a 20 ounce bottle. It's a full 
two-liter bottle. It's a sizable thing. Do you think she could or would have drunk directly from a two-liter bottle while driving a car? Well... That seems rather unwieldy. Yeah. No, I don't think it's that unwieldy. I've definitely done it with Diet Mountain Dew. Yeah? Diet Mountain Dew? For God's sakes, why? That (laughs) stuff is vile, and I like Mountain Dew. Anyway, I don't think it's that weird. (laughs) And one thing that Julie told us is that she would use straws or Twizzlers for, like, everything, even coffee, because she was really concerned about her teeth and, like, the coloring. Oh, I see. That would make drinking from a two-liter bottle a little easier if you had some kind of device you're using as a straw. You don't have mm-hmm. to, like, tip this huge thing up while you're driving. Yeah. All right. So it's possible she was uh, drinking from this... Probable, I would say. It's probable she was drinking from this... Uh, two liter bottle of cherry coke like you said we can't know what's in it of course or what was in it right um but it looks like cherry coke was definitely in it based on the photograph yeah i think it's quite possible that it was just cherry coke yeah cherry coke infused with a twizzler yeah so the first miscellaneous item is what the report says about the exhaust system so at some point somebody had said either on a podcast or the internet or something, but it sort of became common knowledge that the exhaust had been removed from the Saturn. This report contradicts that. It says that the exhaust was intact, but I think what happened was somebody may have looked and not seen the tailpipe because it shows that the tailpipe was so corroded that it broke off. But the exhaust system is on the car. So I think I understand maybe where the rumor came from. When you would walk up to the back of the car, people noticed that the rear exhaust pipe wasn't there anymore. And I think that because of that, people had assumed or thought that the exhaust system had maybe been removed for some sort of analysis. And actually, in this report, what they're saying is that uh, just the tailpipe was broken off. That's literally it. They said that when they did their investigation, they actually have photographs of the tailpipe kind of rusted and bent. And and actually, when they first looked at it, the tailpipe was bent all the way backwards. And when they went to kind of look at it, it basically like fell off the car. And their analysis of that was basically that they think that as the car was being moved around that field, whether it be with a tow truck or a flatbed or something like that, that the car's on an angle. And that basically the rear muffler could have been low to the ground and got bent backwards and eventually broke off when they were looking at it. So as far as we know... The exhaust system has not been removed from the car, but the tailpipe that comes out of the back of the muffler was broken off, and that's been documented in the report. So, And that's just normal corrosion and rust. Yeah. And the only reason that matters is because people, I think, believe that the exhaust system was removed because of the rag in the tailpipe. Right. There is no pictures of a rag or any recovery of a rag or anything like that so the next miscellaneous item is we talked about the liquid dispersion last time that was on the roof and or the headliner and on the door that appeared to be the reddish brownish liquid potentially diet cherry coke and or red wine but there's actually there was another uh, marking in the car. And this this was actually on the Oxygen show. Yes, I remember a little bit. Yeah. Um, so we can put this, this out because it's already out there. But it looks like a brownish black smudge 
And so just to read from from the report, it says on the A-pillar post, which is the part of the car between the windshield and the uh, the driver's side window. I didn't know that before I read this report. And adjacent to the stellar break to the windshield, a brown or blackish type smear is evident. To the naked eye, it gives the basic impression of possibly a left handprint versus a right with three extended digits pointing toward the roof line. However, again, a specialized technical examination of this mark would need to be conducted by other persons. So it's hard to to say exactly what this is or where it came from. Yep. It's an interesting detail because you wonder what it is and how it got there. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't really agree that it looks like a handprint. Nor do I. I mean, it does look like a handprint, but it doesn't look like a real handprint. I can see what they mean with the three fingers and possibly a thumb. But the, you know, the one that's closest to the window is like the longest finger. And that one should be shorter than the middle finger next to it. Like, why would someone's hand be covered in this black sooty material? Like, it doesn't quite make sense. So that's exactly what I thought. It could very easily just be like a mechanic that had grease on his hands or something. But it almost looks like the entire hand is is dirty. And that's a little strange. Like, if you have dirt or oil or something on your hands, it's going to be like on your fingers. It's not going to be evenly distributed on your hand usually unless you submerge your entire hand in like oil or dirt, right? So for that reason, I thought that it was actually a shoe print. Because if you look at the bottom, it's curved. Looks Uh, like a heel, you think? At the bottom there? Yeah, there's like a very clear oval imprint there that is not characteristic of a hand, certainly. And I think that like a shoe on like a hand, it would make sense that you would have evenly distributed mud or or dirt on the bottom of a shoe. Yeah, it was a shoe that was like striking on the face that's facing into the car and then like sliding around the corner. I, I could maybe see... It is weird. I mean, what they interpret as fingers does look like a repeating pattern, like something like skidding along it or something, like a solid long object um, that like impacts three separate times or maybe more. Mm -hmm. They mentioned in this report, a special technical examination would need to be conducted. Do we know if that was ever done either by the police or somebody else? No, we do not. Okay. I think that basically they're just explaining the limitations of their ability in this case because like they weren't allowed to do any testing right you need someone to do like a chemical analysis to determine what that material is yeah i think it's hard to make what exactly that is it Mm -hmm. definitely fell into like a kind of a weird category of we don't really know for sure but it should be should be noted right so the third miscellaneous item is that in the report they point out that the rear view mirror appears to be missing but the supporting bracket is still in place and did not show any sign of damage. It says, in order to take the mirror off the windshield, it needs to be elevated toward the roof line off the support. To attach the mirror, it needs to be slipped down onto the support and within a groove channel. The mirror is then secured to the bracket by tightening an Allen screw or nut fastener. If the Allen screw were loose, the mirror could possibly be dislodged during contact with the operator as they are propelled forward towards the windshield during a frontal impact. This does not rule out the possibility that the mirror had been removed by police personnel for analysis and or was initially missing prior to the incident. So, in other words, the rear view mirror was missing 
but nothing appeared to be broken. So presumably it was taken perhaps for testing or fingerprint analysis or something. It's also possible it was just missing, but he does note that. Yeah, I could see trying to use that to get good prints to demonstrate who was driving the car because you're likely to adjust your mirror. And we know they dusted other places, right? There's evidence of dusting on the um, on the window crank, mm-hmm. which would be another place that you would hopefully find a print. That would be my guess as to why that's removed. The fact that it's not there, I mean, there's not that many possibilities, right? Either the police took it for investigation or Mora took it, unless it broke, but it doesn't look broken. It looks like it was properly slid off. Right. I think most likely explanation is prints, dusting for prints. Probably. You know, the police could answer that question very easily. (laughs) Well, if we had the accident scene photos, that would answer it too. Be nice to have those photos. (laughs) (laughs) So the next part is that there's a random piece which looks like it comes from a car. We don't know what this piece is. The investigator doesn't know what it is. And it's a little bit perplexing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the way that they describe it is it's broken and it has like a round connecting port with a metal retaining ring. But I can't tell what it is. And I I don't even want to guess. I'd rather have other people that know more about cars take a look at it and try to figure it out. Yeah. I think the one thing we can probably say about it, though, is that it's not a part of the Saturn because... Even though it didn't have a part number, there was a Chrysler logo embossed on like a flat portion of it. So Chrysler is owned by Dodge, I believe. So it'd have to come from like a a car that was either a Dodge or a Chrysler. Yeah, we'll post some pictures of it and you never know. I mean, maybe somebody will take a look at it and know what it's from. Um, and who knows like what this might lead to. I mean, somebody might recognize it. Mm-hmm. Although I will say... Typically, when, when you have an accident, the law enforcement that shows up, if there's like parts around the car or like broken pieces, they usually put them inside the car. Yeah. So it's possible that it was from like a different accident and it was just like on the side of the road and it was put in the Saturn because somebody thought that it could be a part of the car, but it's hard to say. You know, the other thing that I think about, too, is, is, you know, the chain of custody concerning the car seems a little rough because it was just sitting in that field out next to Troop F for so many years. And another thing is I have no idea if this part at some point somebody thought that this was off of Mora's car and it wasn't and they just threw it in her car. And that could have happened any time during that six year time frame as well. But so, I mean, just we have no idea and we're not even sure that it's connected or not connected to her vehicle or accident in any way. But I do think it probably is worth putting the pictures out there because it is in the report and it's something that's, you know, a little bit strange. Mm -hmm. So so I think that the last thing is an an interesting one. So the investigator, uh, as part of his process of looking at possible locations that she could have gotten fuel because the fuel tank was obviously full, the closest location was the Swiftwater stage stop. And so he, in his report, says that he went to Swiftwater and talked to a person that works there that did not want to give their name. She did, however, indicate that there was another woman outside the store 
and at the front corner. It appeared to her that the unknown woman was hesitant about going into the building, apparently because of a red pickup truck with a wooden bed was traveling very slowly past the parking lot. So I don't know if the person that he's talking to was the person that owned the store. When I talked to the person that owned the store about 10 years ago, they said that they noticed a pickup truck that night, but they never said anything about a female. So it's kind of one of those like miscellaneous things where supposedly this woman who was working in 2004 saw somebody outside Swift Water, but was not able to identify them or say who they were. So obvious speculation would be is, was that Mora? Did she somehow make it to the gas station? And that's who this person saw. But there just doesn't seem to be a lot to corroborate this. Yeah. It's just in the report. And I do think it should be mentioned, but I don't know. What are your thoughts? Mm, Well, one thing that I thought was interesting was that in Monaghan's transcript, I noticed that one of the questions that he was asked was about whether he had heard about a suspicious woman that was supposedly seen at the Swiftwater station. And he didn't, he had never heard anything like that. But assuming that that question wasn't prompted by this report, then it's two independent pieces of evidence suggesting that there was a woman at the Swiftwater station. So I don't really know what to make of it, but it's good to keep in the back of your head, I guess. Right. I think that that makes sense. Okay, now we're on to the meat and potatoes part of the black box, which this part was fairly complicated, hard to probably describe over a podcast. Right. But luckily, we actually have a physicist here this time. So Yeah, it doesn't do a lot of good, but let's let's talk about it anyway. Okay. So first, we're going to talk about the black box, and then we'll get into more of the physical damage to the car. So the first thing is it should be noted at the time of our investigation, the Saturn had been moved throughout the backfield of the barracks. The front bumper was now hanging off the vehicle and not in the same condition as depicted in photographs taken in 2007. So in other words, the bumper was now hanging off and that wasn't the case before. Right. However, the structural damage to the hood was consistent and unchanged. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. So the report states that there was no evidence to support that investigators from another agency had accessed the module directly. However, they do note that it's possible they accessed the data indirectly through another means. But basically, I think what he's suggesting there is that it doesn't appear that the police had previously accessed the black box before them. Yeah. The primary function of the black box is to record data related to events precipitating an airbag deployment, so when the airbag goes off. And in this particular model Saturn, the airbags were not designed to inflate in rollovers, side impacts, or rear impacts. And when there is a deployment event, both airbags are designed to deploy regardless of whether or not there's a passenger. Okay, that's good to know. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So without knowing exactly how their system works, I would guess that it, it's going to take a, an impact where the motion of some part of the car is rapidly increasing toward the driver compartment, toward the, the front of the car. And it makes a judgment whether it's severe enough to deploy the airbags. Correct. So the airbags are designed to deploy when the system senses a high enough velocity change over a short enough period of time. And by velocity, they just mean speed plus direction. Um, the rule of thumb for how fast it has to be moving for the airbags to deploy is about 15 miles an hour. But again, velocity includes direction as well. So it's not going to be exactly 15 miles an hour. Right. What's going to cause the airbag to deploy is the sensor's measurement of the change. So if you drop from 15 miles an hour to zero miles per hour over what period of time, that's what, what matters. So if you drop over several seconds, that's not an impact. That's not a problem. If you drop 15 to zero in a fraction of a second, that's a more significant impact. So it's, yeah, it's measuring the change in speed over some time. Right. He says that the fabric from both airbags was cut out, perhaps for examination or analysis by authorities. So I think there, there was a question recently about how we can be sure whether Mora was driving the car. And one way would be to analyze any DNA that may still be on the airbag, because um, that could, you know, give a pretty good indication of whether or not she was driving the car when it crashed. And it could also tell us whether or not there was a passenger if they were to do an analysis on the passenger side airbag. But whether or not they did those things, we don't know. So two events were recorded. The first event was a non-deployment event, which is basically enough to wake up the system, but not enough to command the airbag to deploy. And by wake up, I mean that the system is triggered to begin recording for five seconds. The second event was significant enough to command the airbag to deploy. So the second impact, just to not confuse anybody, the second impact in the report is the airbag going off. Mm -hmm. Right. The first impact is undetermined on what it was, but the investigator gives a description of things that it could be. Correct. What are some of the things that it could be that would trigger that first event? The examples they give would be hitting a pothole or a mailbox or perhaps entering into the ravine along the eastbound shoulder. So it was something that, again, wasn't enough to deploy the airbags. It was just enough to wake up the system. So to me, this is my interpretation. She hit something that didn't stop the car. It didn't bring the velocity rapidly to zero enough to deform the car in such a way that set off the airbags. And then she did hit something yes. that did that. Almost immediately after two tenths of a second later. So there's two events. Yes. And there's timing between the two events, right? What's the timing between the two events? The first one occurred two tenths of a second before the second. So it's very tight. Just in two tenths of one second, the first event happens and then the second event happens, which is the airbag deploying. Yeah. And while that sounds like almost no time at all because it's nearly simultaneous, it's actually enough time for the Saturn to have traveled between six and 11 inches. 
Right. And they, they calculated that because they actually did not know the exact speed that she was going when she had the accident. Mm-hmm. So they are estimating at 20 miles an hour, it was what? Uh, six inches mm-hmm. and at 30 miles an hour it was 11 inches right so they're using those two variables to try to give you an understanding because they don't have the exact speed uh recorded when when the airbag deployed yeah and that was because of a loss of communication between the sdm unit and the vehicle during the second impact so for some reason it didn't record the speed um that said though he also says that based on the damage that the Saturn underwent, it is the opinion of this analyst that the speed was extremely low with little or no possibility of injury. So he doesn't define extremely low, but I would imagine that it was toward, you know, the lower 20 miles an hour than 30 miles an hour. All right. Would be my guess. Okay. So one thing that's important, I think, to note is that when the airbag deploys, it actually records data five seconds before the airbag deploys. So for example, the black box is recording data. If no event happens, there's no data saved. But because the airbag deployed, the black box was actually recording data five seconds prior to the airbag going off that actually gets saved. And the only reason that this is important is because if something else had happened within those five seconds, it would show up. The only thing that it shows five seconds prior to the airbag going off is only two tenths of a second before there's an event that's consistent with going into a ditch, hitting a snowbank, hitting a pothole, hitting a curb, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And the reason that that's important is because you can sort of eliminate actually a lot of outcomes from the equation, if that makes sense. So like whether or not there's one impact or two, which was the case in this case, can tell you something a little bit about how the accident may have happened and certainly how it didn't happen. Right. Um, What the report says is the Saturn would also need to be moving at the time the two commands were recorded. If the Saturn were stopped and an unknown vehicle or object of significant force struck the Saturn, only one command would have been recorded. To have both commands occur nearly simultaneously as they did, the Saturn would need to be moving in a forward projection under its own propulsion. And the electrical system would also need to be activated for the STM unit to record. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that if the car was off, nothing would have been recorded. And if she was stationary and was struck by another vehicle or object of some force, only one command would have been recorded. There were three areas of contact to the front of the Saturn. The first one, which contained more significant damage than the other two, was a frontal impact to the driver's front corner. The other two impacts were minute in size as compared to the damage noted above. The secondary dents did not contain any fractures of the paint or contain any foreign material. One was located on the passenger side, while the second was located in the middle of the hood. The depth of both indents were so minuscule, measurement was difficult, if not impossible, to measure. So basically, they were functionally irrelevant. Yeah, you can see them with the mm-hmm. the images here. They're very small, and they could have been pre-existing very easily. Yeah, so basically, he focuses on that left front area of impact. Mm-hmm. 
And it was like the extreme left, right? It's like just the the front corner of the car. Right. Uh, on close examination of the hood damage, the width was seven inches with a maximum depth of nine inches. The overall height was four inches and angled at 45 degrees off perpendicular. It's about half of a right angle. Or exactly half of a right angle. Yeah, so it's not straight up and down. It's It's kind of diagonal across the hood. Right. So what I believe that they're explaining in this is is that basically what they're saying is, is that there's more damage to the hood and less damage to the bumper beneath. Yes, there's no crumpling of the bumper at all, notably. You would expect to see the front bumper at least caved in in some way, and it seems to be almost undamaged. Right. Uh, there was no fracture of the paint or foreign material embedded. The overall damage was not smooth, but rather uneven and did not contain the classic geometrical shape of a tree's outer facade. So, in other words, I think what he's saying there is that typically when you see a car that's hit a tree, it's it sort of has like a smooth facade, like pretty round. Right. And like the shape of a tree. <laughs> correct. Yeah. <laughs> and and it kind of looks like the the Saturn's is is like bumpy. Yeah. Like you can sort of see where there's like crunchiness to it. It's not it's not exactly smooth. It looks like an irregular sort of impact or an irregular right. shaped object. Kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. I would think though that could also be from just the way the metal warped and twisted. I mean it impacted a curved section of the hood. And when you buckle a curved object, sometimes you get weirdness. I also wonder when they say the geometric impact, you know, of hitting a tree, like are they talking about like a, a big tree? Because I would think like a very wide tree, sure, you might get more of a circular imprint pattern. But what if it's like a thin tree, like a like a four inch wide tree? That wouldn't leave much of an imprint at all. That would just be like, that's like hitting a pole, right? It's just a, a thin, solid object. Yeah, that's interesting. He just sort of has one standard shape of a tree's outer facade. My assumption is that he's looking at the trees in the area and perhaps even focusing on the one with the bow on it, maybe, because that's would make sense could be or just going from his experience of having seen impacts with trees and it doesn't look like most of the ones he's seen yeah uh, so the entire hood was pushed back two inches and buckled in the middle due to impact the two inch movement also resulted in the radiator upper support being bent and the headlight assembly displaced backwards however the aforementioned bumper and inner core were not pushed back to the same extent if they were pushed back to have a perfectly vertical inline damage with the hood, the front bumper and core would need to be displaced 7 to 9 inches. This was not the case. It appears the intrusion by the unknown object and its interaction with the Saturn was at an angle less acute than 90 degrees. So, in other words, if the car had hit something straight up and down, then the insides, like the guts <laughs> under the hood would be pushed back the same distance as as the damage. Right. But because it was on an acute angle, it was only pushed back two inches. Right. So I think it's still unclear exactly how the damage to the Saturn happened, but he does go on to give his hypothesis as to how the damage occurred. So... He concludes by saying, My opinions set forth in this report are stated to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, 
and probability within the field of collision reconstruction. The aforementioned conclusions are the opinions of this office, which is based on the findings, inferences, and conclusions of my review, kinematics analysis, and or study of the collision. And that conclusion is that the Saturn was originally traveling east on Wild Amnesic Road, past the left bend in the roadway near the weathered barn. From this point, the Saturn more than likely went off the roadway along the eastbound shoulder and entered the ravine before moving further off the shoulder and striking a fixed object on an acute angle off of a vertical axis. The SDM download confirms that two events occurred with a non-deployment occurring first before the command for deployment. Both events occurred within two-tenths of a second and within approximately one foot. The topography of the roadway at the locus also coincides. So it, the car's not sitting flat with a tree that's straight up and down that it runs straight into if it if it does impact a tree. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is, is that the car would actually be angling down into the ditch and that there's potentially an object on the other side of the ditch that's that's now actually on a natural angle because the car is facing down into a ditch or even whatever it impacts is also could be leaning. And this is specific to the damage that's on the left front of the hood that everybody looks at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that part of why people, including myself, couldn't understand how the Saturn could have struck a tree and caused the damage it did because there's more damage on the hood than there is on the bumper and none of the headlights were broken is because we're assuming that trees are vertical and cars are parallel to the road. (laughs) Right. But the best way to think about it that I could come up with is picture something with a vertical facade, like a tree or a pole or something in front of a car, in front of the, the hood, and it tipping over onto the car. The damage to the the hood's going to be on an acute angle, not straight up and down. Right. Yeah. If you picture a tree at a very sharp angle coming out of the ground and you drive into the tree, the tree's pointing over your car, your bumper is never actually necessarily going to strike the tree because you're going to stop before the bottom part of the tree is actually making contact with your car. Because the angle of the tree is like pinning your car in place before you actually get all the way into it. Now, whether or not those three trees specifically made the damage, I don't actually think that that's the, necessarily the case. Those trees are larger than the diameter of the impact on the hood. Um, the, the impact on the hood is a little bit smaller. But I also think that we just don't know. We, we know that Fred Murray says that there were smaller trees right there. He says that those trees were removed. Witness C in their statement also stated that there were some trees that were removed at one point. And we don't know. If she goes into the snowbank, into the ditch, there may have just been something in the snow that also caused that damage that we don't know what it was. But it seems it seems that the tree impacted the car in that area based on all witness accounts. So I know I've tried to um, steer away from inserting too much opinion in this episode. But if you want to talk for two or three minutes about any impressions, takeaways, final thoughts. I definitely would like to share my takeaway from it. Yeah. You know, 
I don't know if I can do it in two minutes or three minutes. Well, you might have to. <laughs> All right. So here's my takeaway from the report. One, when we both were up and met with Terry for the first time, I had no concept that we were getting what we got. I thought we were getting like data, maybe like a disc or something like that, that showed kind of raw data that came from the car that we would then need to go find a specialist that would have to, that we would then have to get them to interpret, interpret it for us. Yeah. And what we got was, is it, what is it? 26 pages. Um, I think it's actually like 20. It's a little less than that. Okay. So but, you said 26 a couple of times and I never corrected you. I got you. So <laughs> it, it's a, it's a 20 plus page report or whatever, but it, it was, it, it's just very thorough. Like one of the biggest things for me was I had always had the suspicion based on a number of very small details that maybe Mora got into an accident and then moved her car. And you remember us talking about this when it came to uh, the car not being able to be restarted because that's what we had taken away from the oxygen channel is she couldn't have restarted the car. And then we get this report and we find out that it totally contradicts that. It actually 100% shows that we could restart the car. And then we were able to further support that by Fred starting the car just a few days later when he was up there. So I think that was one of the biggest takeaways for me is that I kind of had suspected it was possible, but I had also kind of ruled it out a little bit, but questioned because, you know, the oxygen series had concluded you couldn't restart the car, but you actually could. So that was, that was a big one for me. What do you, what do you think, Ethan? What was your takeaways? Um, so I mostly found it very interesting. It filled in some blanks. I didn't find anything particularly uh, shocking. I, like you, though, you know, just to reiterate, I also sort of accepted from the Oxygen show that she couldn't start the car. So as a rule, I don't just believe anything that they said on the Oxygen show. There's a lot of stuff that I, I disagree with their reasoning on. But for some reason, that one it never occurred to me to really question it that much because I didn't really think it mattered. Because my thinking was like, well, she didn't restart the car, though, because the car was still there. Right. But mm -hmm. but right. once you realize that actually there's no reason she couldn't have, then you, you it it allows you to kind of start to think like, well, you know, maybe she did move it. Maybe she didn't move it that far. Maybe the accident happened there. She moved a little bit. So that that was interesting. I don't know that that matters. You know, I, I don't know if that helps us figure anything out. Um, it could perhaps help some on the timeline, but I have to study that more closely you know, I'd have to look more closely at the timeline again to see if it actually helps or if I just like hope that it helps. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think another huge takeaway on it was the fact that because of the timing of the first event and the second event, it makes it very unlikely that somebody ran into her or that she ran into somebody. Well, it certainly fits with hitting a snowbank. I'll say that. But I, I wouldn't rule out that there are other possibilities that would fit as well. That's certainly one that comes to our mind because that seems the most obvious based on where the car was found and, and the witness reports. Right. But from the pictures that we're finding, or at least my, this is my opinion personally, mm -hmm. from the pictures that I find online and from reading the report, it seems pretty clear that the car matches everything. Like all of it kind of fits together. So, and I'll stay open-minded. You know, a lot of people talk about the other theories, like maybe she went off the road somewhere else 
and then the car was moved there. But I just can't find any evidence of that. Yeah. I mean, I would certainly agree that the black box doesn't contain evidence that she hit a car or hit something. Well, hit A, hit a car or B, had an accident elsewhere. I would say what it shows is that like it seems to be consistent with her going off the road there in a ditch and hitting a tree. But I wouldn't say that that means it rules out anything else necessarily. I mean, it rules out certain things, but it certainly couldn't really rule out the exact same scenario occurring somewhere else or hitting another similar object like a like a, a pole or something. Yeah. So I guess my point is, is that I don't definitively say Mora hit a tree because I don't think that it's just solely one straight up and down tree and she drove straight off a road and impacted a tree. Yeah. I think it's all these other elements that you have to factor in that created this damage. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I, I agree that, that that's that the knee jerk, it doesn't look like she hit a tree does not mean that those who said at the time that she hit a tree were like wrong. Right. It just means they weren't <clears throat> necessarily. Well, I think my personal opinion on the, the police report and, and anyone at the time who said she hit a tree uh, unless you see the car up against a tree, they're kind of just making an assumption. I think that's what they said. You know, they, I, I agree. They yeah. like I saw some trees there. Her car was near some trees. It there's nothing else around. She probably hit a tree. So why would you say anything else? Right. What I always reacted to was the reports from someone like uh, a police officer on scene or Butch Atwood saying, "Oh, she hit a tree," where it's like. On the service level, it seems logical, but then when you actually like pay close attention and try to think it through, it doesn't actually seem logical. So you wonder what drew them to that conclusion mm-hmm. that she definitely hit a tree. And it makes you think like they didn't seem like they were thinking too hard about it or trying too hard to put the pieces together, which I think is the case. Like I, yeah. I really don't think that any of those people thought too hard about it or thought there was any reason to think too hard about it. Like, right. why would you question it? So to me, it was always like, it needs to be questioned. It needs to be thought about because like, look, it doesn't look right. And it always mm-hmm. bothered me that it seemed like the police weren't questioning it and weren't really thinking yeah. about it too much. And so, and, you know, looking through this data, it's like, okay, yeah, it doesn't look like she hit a tree, like a big tree, but it is right. more, if you run it through different scenarios, you can see how she could have hit into trees in some way or a small tree, or there could have been trees yeah. involved right. and you can make it make sense. That's kind of the conclusion that I draw. Yeah. And then when you start to go through the reports, there's one report that says that the Marat see backup lights. Yep. So that was that was an indication to me that maybe she had tried to move the car. And then when Maggie Freeling posted that one photo from Guy Parody's report where he interviewed the Marats, they say clearly in their statement that the car is facing towards Lincoln and then the car is then facing towards Woodsville. So they actually indicate that the car moved. And that was another large indication like, okay, well, now you have a witness that was on the scene that night that's also saying that it it possibly moved. And then I was like, well, the auction series said they couldn't restart the car. What do you do? Like if she couldn't restart the car, there's no way that she wrecked it and then moved it. Right. You know? Right. But then we find out that's not true. Right. And then the more and more and more evidence that we seem to find indicates she got into an accident and she moved the car. So. Yeah. I do think one of the most important pieces of information is that she could have restarted the car. Uh I think that perhaps explains how it got into the position that it was in Uh because I can't see how it would be possible for the car to have spun around the way that it did or the way that I assumed it did going at such a low speed. Uh So to me, it makes more sense that she did move the car 
and that's why it's facing the wrong direction. But if that's if that's true, then I think the bigger question that I have is why didn't she drive away? Number one, uh-huh. and number two, what is going through her head when she puts the rag in the tailpipe? Uh-huh. And it's been a little bit frustrating to hear <laughs> the different variations of why she may have put it in the tailpipe because like first people thought it was put in there to like stop the car uh-huh. and now i've been hearing that it was put in there to jump start the car which i don't understand at Oops. all yeah but that's a different story but it doesn't matter like why any one person would put the rag in the tailpipe it doesn't matter why i would or why anyone else would all that matters is why Mora would and her dad's been very clear on this point that the only reason he said to do it was to avoid getting ticketed by police. Right. I guess on the assumption that it would filter out the smoke. Yeah, or at least block it enough so that uh, she could pass by if there was a cop. So I think that he was sort of assuming that it would stay in long enough that if she saw a cop like at a speed trap or something, she could put the rag in the tailpipe and try to get by and hope she didn't get ticketed. And he even said that it probably won't work, but it's worth a shot. So in her head, the rag in the tailpipe is inextricably linked to police. Yeah. So it does kind of change my perception of what her intent was, the fact that the rag was in the tailpipe. Yeah. Because like the the sort of assumption out there is that she was trying to flee the scene as quickly as possible. And I don't I don't know if it speaks to it or not, but I kind of feel like it doesn't. I kind of feel like she wasn't necessarily trying to flee the scene I don't as quickly think so. as possible. I don't think so either. I don't think so, no. I mean, she obviously took several steps trying to figure out what she was going to do. If she was that concerned with fleeing, why didn't she just leave the car f- nose forward into the ditch where exactly. the tree is and just get out and bail? Bingo. But she didn't do that. She took like several steps to try to figure out, what do I do? And so like ra- rag in the tail... Like rag in the tailpipe. She was in the trunk of the car. Mm-hmm. She like, you know, she talked to the bus driver. The car got moved, like all these different things. And then and then she doesn't have cell phone signal and goes, I got to go make a phone call. I got to figure out where to get to a phone. Yeah, I guess really the only data point we have is the accident from two days earlier where we know for a fact that she had been drinking that night. Right. We can't necessarily say that she was intoxicated or not. Right. But... She was, I think, less than a mile from her dorm at that intersection where she crashed. Yep. She would have probably had been curious or unsure if she would be over or under the legal level to drive. She didn't run away, and she could have literally just gone right, right down the road and right to her dorm and gotten away. Yeah. She didn't flee the scene. And so I guess the point is that I think... It's a mistake to assume that she fled. I agree. Yeah, I and, agree. and I think that's most people's assumption is that she fled. And I don't think that that's wise.
Yeah? Diet Mountain Dew, for God's sakes, why? That <laughs> stuff is vile, and I like Mountain Dew. It'll give you the diabetes. It's like, anything that's like that big, you shouldn't be drinking for that in your car. It's not safe. It's an interesting thing to be kind of, um, <laughs> like, concerned about. I do it all the time. Just use a, just use a small... I cup. sometimes do it with a gallon. Oh my God. If I saw somebody on the road drinking from a gallon... And they're call I'm calling the police and telling them that this person is a dangerous driver. That's ridiculous. You're ridiculous. I do that. I do it with the sweet tea from Chick-fil-A in a gallon when I drive. I do it with lemonade sometimes. Yeah. Oh, my God. I don't know why I said that. I don't do that. Because you can't not talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, 